Okay, let's look at our scripture, which can be found on the back of the bulletin. This is Galatians 6, 1 through 11. Paul continues to speak to the Corinthian church, challenging them on their behavior. Is it matching up with their identity? Hear the word of God. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The word of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever played the game with yourself or with uh, your family or friends. If you could be someone else, who would you want to be? And uh, as I think of that question, I think, first of all, well, maybe it's someone with a tremendous amount of skill. I'd always fancied myself a, a skinnier Rafa Nadal. You know, I wouldn't mind uh, having those biceps and being able to hit the ball like him or now that I'm a pickleball aficionado, Ben Johns, who is uh, number one in the world, maybe it's someone with tremendous amounts of skill. And then I think, no, no, that's not good. How about someone with tremendous amounts of character? I think of Mother Teresa and her selfless love uh, for the dying on the streets of Calcutta. Or my hero, Eric Little, who was a missionary to China who ran uh, the 400 in the Olympic Games in 1918, uh, after saying that he would not run on Sunday. I think of people like that. And in the end, I come to the conclusion that the person I want to be most is the person that I was meant to be. Right? There's the person I am and the person that I am meant to be. See, the truth of the matter is there is only one you and only one me on the entire universe, in the history of the world. Each one of us was made to be a unique manifestation of the glory of God. Our personality traits, our characteristics were honed and crafted by the master craftsman, God himself, to display the glory of God. But each of us has been damaged by the fall of man. Each of us, rather than showing and manifesting the glory of God in our own unique and special way, has been damaged and turned inside out, if you will, by sin. But Christ came to the world 
to redeem us, to restore us back to whom we were meant to be. You see, a radical fall requires a radical redemption. And Paul is chastising the Corinthian church that they have been redeemed through the blood of Christ. They've been given a new spirit, but they continue to live in sin, choosing the old way rather than who they are, working against God's restoration plan in their life. Paul is saying to them, and the Bible is saying to us, to stop resisting, to surrender to God for his radical plan in our lives. See, God has a radical plan in your life to restore you, to take you to whom you were meant to be. And we have a part to play in that. So we must examine God's radical plan of salvation. And we must understand and walk in the life that God has called us to. In order to do that, we need to understand three things. Number one, that God has called us to a life of radical love. Number two, God has done in us, called us to a life of radical change. And finally, God has called us to a life of radical holiness. Because God's radical grace calls us to live a radical life. Let's look at these points. God has called us to a radical love. We've been walking through this issues going on with the Corinthian church. And if you've been here for a while listening to sermons, you know some of the background. That there is factions that have risen up in the Corinthian church. These various groups following these various people. And they're uh, treating each other not like brothers and sisters, but rather like enemies, preferring one over the other. In fact, the culture of the church is mirroring that of the city of Corinth. And this is bled into how they solve disputes with one another. And the way that some of them are doing that is by going to the courts. Look at verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now, this word grievance uh, communicates that this is a civil issue. It's not a criminal issue. It's an issue dealing with property or money. It's not a criminal issue. In, in Romans 13, Paul very clearly communicates that God has given authority to the courts regarding enforcing criminal infractions. This should never be used, this passage, as an excuse when there is criminal activity of one against another in the church. But that's not what's going on. It's a civil issue over some sort of property or something. Now, you need to understand a little bit about what the culture was like and the justice system was like back then. Because going to court didn't necessarily imply that you were going to get a fair and impartial hearing. In fact, the courts were not fair. They favored the wealthy over the poor, the creditor over the debtor. And the way that you conducted lawsuits, there was a lot of assassinating the other person's character. It was basically somewhat of a brawl where one side was goal was to paint the other person and to defame them in such a way 
that they uh, essentially prevailed over them. In fact, the courts were a way where the rich would battle each other in order to gain social status by defeating one another in the court. And yet, this is where Christians are going from the church at Corinth to solve their disputes. Notice what Paul says, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. In other words, you're not caring about one another. When there's a small problem, you're going to the courts, and he makes this argument why this is wrong. In verse 2, he says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? In other words, at the end of all things, you will be participants in judging the entire world. Did you know that, Christian? Listen to Revelation 2, 26 through 27. To everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod as when clay pots are shattered. 2 Timothy 2.12 puts it this way, if we endure, we will also reign with him. So what is he talking about, about judging the world? He's not really talking about that we are the judge, but rather we are co-rulers with Christ. And that our job, one of our jobs, will be to administer Christ's authority over the whole world as his appointed people. We will judge the world, and indeed it goes even further. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? We will be involved in the judgment of angels. What what is he talking about? He's talking about the sentencing of Satan and his evil angels who rebelled against God. It's interesting, in Matthew 25, 41, uh, Jesus speaks of hell, and this is what he says. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, one of hell's original purposes and intentions of its construction was for the devil and his angels. Now, Paul's point here is not to get into the specifics of how are we going to judge the world and judge angels, but rather to point out the inconsistency with what we will be doing then, what the Corinthians will be doing then, and what they are currently doing now. In other words, their future status and responsibilities should reveal to them how foolish their behavior is. He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. And so he rebukes the Corinthians. Verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. In other words, when you treat each other this way, You're doing is letting selfishness triumph over love. You're repudiating everything that Christ came to do. You're still acting like the world. Paul is saying this is how you are supposed to relate to one another. Notice in verse 6, he talks about them as brother to brother, brother to sister. What is he saying to these church people and to us? That as the church, 
As believers in Christ, we are family with one another. In the same way as there's a physical family, those ties of affection are the very same that we are supposed to have for our fellow believer in the church. Jesus described the type of love that he had, uh, that he wanted us to have, excuse me, for one another in the church in John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Jesus sets a standard, the standard for how we are to love. In this way, as I have loved you, in other words, as Jesus has loved the disciples, so we are to love one another. And we know how Jesus loved the disciples, don't we? Placing them and their needs above his own, even to the point of death. It's not far from this passage in 1 Corinthians 6 that we will get to 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul defines love. And what does he say about it? That love is patient and kind, does not envy, it does not boast, is not proud or rude or self-seeking. What the Bible is saying is that the love that we are to have for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is to demonstrate to the world the transformative power of Christ. But he says in verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? In other words, the world is watching you church and how you treat one another. And by acting this way, Corinthians, you're deluding the witness of Jesus Christ. You should rather have the correct attitude, Paul says. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? In other words, rather than assassinating each other's character and insulting the church, why not just take the hit? Compared to what you're going to inherit, who you are in Christ, does it really matter all of that much? See, the call that Paul gives to the church is the call that God gives to us to be different than the world. And in the world, we know how it works, right? Because we live in it. That everything is fine between you and me until you cross me. And once you cross me, all bets are off. Whatever means are at my disposal to take you down, social media, the courts, speaking to others, generating dissension, our world essentially says, look, I'm fine with you and you're fine with me as long as you don't offend me. But when you do, it's an eye for an eye. In fact, it's more than an eye for an eye. It's eye for a body. Last one standing. Now, hopefully, we are not taking each other to court. I know of no outstanding cases right now in Redeemer Presbyterian Church. <laughs> but the call to us is to love one another sacrificially. Now, you may think, well, I thought I was just coming here once a week to get some religious instruction. 
And I need to tell you that it's so much more than that. That God calls each one of us to a specific place to be a part of a family and to manifest God in how we live together. In other words, I have a responsibility to the other members of this church. They are my brothers and sisters. And so I must see this church as a family. And good families invest in one another, don't they? I have a responsibility. My mentor, he told me, whenever you go and you take an assignment as a pastor at a church, you buy your burial plot there. In other words, your mentality is, I am here until death. Now, could God call me someplace else? Yes, he could. But my mentality is I'm here for the long haul, and I'm here with you, and you're here with me. God calls to commit to love love one another sacrificially and to deal with one another gracefully and truthfully. Notice what he says. When one of you has a grievance against each other, not if one of you has a grievance against each other, but when one of you has a grievance against each other. In other words, things are going to come up, right? If you have a brother or a sister, you know that siblings have issues from time to time. The question is, how do we deal with it? And the answer is to go to them directly, right? To work it out. And if there's a bigger problem, not to go out there to leave, to check out, but rather to come to the church. That's why you have elders. And indeed, we actually have a presbytery over the elders, And each of them are called courts. Do you know that the elders is also called the court? The three-ring system of the United States of America, the system of checks and balances, was designed after the Presbyterian Church. That we have systems in place to be able to handle disputes and work them out between brothers and sisters. Had an interesting conversation with two brothers in Christ in the church this week. I'm not going to name the brothers. That's not important. But basically, one brother and myself had done a very poor job in communicating something to another uh, brother. And hadn't done our homework, hadn't done our uh, really been smart, and uh, had really hurt this brother. And uh, I say this to my shame. And this other brother had every right to be mad and to be livid. But this third brother, he didn't go to others and basically poison the well against me or the other brother. He didn't take off. He did not not deal with it either. Rather, he made the decision to get closer rather than farther. And what proceeded from that was several phone calls, hashing it out, talking to one another, honestly sharing, which culminated in a call where all three of us were on the line, praying together, asking forgiveness, and receiving it. It was a perfect picture of that's what families do. 
See, there are three attitudes that you can take toward loving one another. The first is, I don't care about you. It's all about me. The second is, I'm going to love you, but I'm going to love you at arm's length. I'm not going to love you too much or be loved by you too much. And the third is, you are my brother and sister in Jesus Christ. If you are a member of this church, this is your family. And families don't show up every now and then. Rather, they engage with one another. They love them, even when they can't be here. And they dig in and they work things out when there's a problem. So practice radical love with each other. The first question is, is Redeemer my home? Is this where I'm being called to be a member? It's not a question of whether you're being called to be a member of a church. The question is where? And if this is where God is calling you, then come, join, buy your burial plot. Come closer, be involved in community with one another because God calls us to a life of radical love. Which leads me to my second point, that God calls us to a life of radical change. See, Paul examines their behavior, what they're doing, and then he asks this question. He says in verse 8, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. And then he asks the question, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Paul moves from behavior to salvation. Now, it would be very easy to look at that passage and to mistakenly conclude that Christian salvation is solely based on our behavior, right? So those that do righteousness inherit the kingdom of God, but that's not what it says. Christianity is not about turning over a new leaf, getting a second chance to do it right, and amassing enough good works that you get into heaven. Though it seems that the verse would indicate this. To live righteously. But that's not what it says. Not those who do unrighteous, but those who are unrighteous. See, the problem is, left to ourselves, we are all under sin. We are all unrighteous. Romans 3.10 puts it this way. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In other words, in our natural state, no one will inherit the kingdom of God because we are all unrighteous. Because we don't love God. We don't obey his commands, which were designed for our good, right? We were designed and built to obey God's word. Kind of like a car that comes off the assembly line. It has a manual, and the manual says, look, here's what you're supposed to do. At 5,000 miles, change the oil. Well, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm never going to change the oil. I don't need to change the oil. What's the point of that? It's a hassle. We were designed to live a certain way. And when we follow after God's commands, we flourish and the world flourishes and God honors, God is honored. And we see this in the life of Jesus Christ, don't we? 
I've never heard anyone who even despises Christianity say, I hate the way that Jesus treated people. I see plenty of people that say, I hate Christians or I hate Christianity, but very, very few saying, I hate Jesus because they recognize the life that he lived, a life of holiness and obedience. But we have not lived that way, have we? Continue with Romans 3.12. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Each one of us has turned against our designer. See, the problem, my friends, with the world and with us, if you are not a Christian, is not our actions, but rather our identity. In fact, our behavior is a reflection of our identity. Jesus said this, doesn't he? Judge a tree by its fruit. Does an orange tree bear apples? Or an apple tree bear orange? No. In other words, the reason why we do not act righteously, or the reason why we act unrighteously, is because we are unrighteous. Notice how he continues on. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, reviler swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, as we go through that list, some of these sins are very socially acceptable in society, and some of them are not. Some of them are even socially acceptable in the church, and some of them are not. But the only thing that matters is what God says. But notice that the Bible makes an astounding statement. Paul is speaking to believers. And this is what he says in verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. In other words, such were some of you. These things you once were. Not these things you once did. In other words, these things were manifestations of your identity. They were tied so tightly to who you were. See, every single one of us, when we rebelled against God, fell into sin. But sin distorts each one of us in different ways. See, some of us fall under these specific sins. But this list is not meant to be exhaustive. Rather, each one of us has fallen under some distortion, some particular sin pattern that is a manifestation of our identity. For some, that sin pattern is sexual, whether heterosexual or homosexual. And we tend to go, oh, well, homosexual, that's far worse. It's not what it says, does it? For some of us, it's greed. This desire to have more and more. I have to have everything. For some of us, it's abuse. This word reviler is one who verbally abuses and beats down. 
But you see, my friends, what Paul is saying here is that the problem is not the behavior. The problem is the identity. See, if you're sick, if you have a cold, you can try to fix the symptoms, right? But to really fix the cold, you've got to get to the root of the problem. So what are a couple of things that we can learn from what Paul is saying here? Here's the first. Don't look down on someone else's sin. Don't look at someone else's sin and ask, this is socially acceptable or this is not. Because the point is that we are all equally culpable. We are all guilty and in the same boat. But here's the second point. And such were some of you. In other words, God calls these kinds of people. God reaches into their lives. So you may say, when you look at someone's sin pattern, oh, God is never, God will never save that person. Absolutely not. But this other person, yeah, okay, maybe. God saved you if you are a believer. God calls these kinds of people. And then finally, the third thing to see is this. And such were some of you. Notice what he's saying. He's using the past tense. In other words, this is who you were. But you're no longer that person. If you are a Christian, you have a new identity. Because you were washed it comes from Ezekiel 36:25 where God says I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. You were washed, Christian. You were justified. Meaning God looked at your life substituting your unrighteous living and your unrighteous record with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you were sanctified, meaning you were set apart. You were empowered for a new holiness to live in the likeness of Christ through the Holy Spirit. What he's saying is that these things no longer dominate you. Or identify you. God has freed you from the penalty and the enslavement to that sin that was tied to your old identity. And given you power to live in accordance with God's word. I doubt you know the name Ahmad Khorezi. In fact, that's not even his real name. But he was a commander of the feared Islamic State of Indonesia a militant group, an Islamic terrorist who now leads an underground movement in Indonesia leading Muslims to personal faith in Christ. And this movement has grown to 7,000 people who meet secretly in house churches across the country. Ahmad says that in the 90s he had become radicalized after the economic crisis. I blamed Christians 
And one day I took a bag with a time bomb to a Protestant church in the Indonesian capital. I was ready to set it off and kill many people. But then I heard the pastor telling the faithful that they should love their enemies and those who persecute them. I never saw that Christian love before in my life, and I became convinced that I should not carry out my destructive plan. I returned with the bag and the bomb, and I was put in detention for a month. Soon after his decision not to kill Christians, he began to see visions from the Lord. And it was in the year 2000 that I met Jesus Christ in a miraculous way for the first time. Because of confessing life, he was kicked out of his house with his father, with his family, and his young children. They had to live on the streets for a little while. And as he wondered how was he going to care for his family, he felt the pull and the temptation to go back to Islam. But he resisted it. He recognized that that is not who I am anymore. And God met him and cared for him and is using him. God did a radical change in his life. If you are a Christian, God has done a radical change in your life. And so we must embrace and live in that change. See, many of us are told by the world, the flesh, and the devil that you can't change. This is who you are. And we listen and believe and live lives of imprisonment to sin. You're told that you're a, a reviler, a bitter, accusatory person who's verbally abusive. Well, that's the environment that I grew up in. That's who I am. I know no other way. I can't escape it. No, it's not. You're a new creation in Christ. Well, I'm buried in sexual sin. Pornography, I, I continue to get pulled back there. I cannot escape its gravity. It's not who you are. You don't have to go there. Will you be tempted to return? Yes. But you don't have to because you have a new identity and a new power. What about this? Those who practice homosexuality. The world says, this is who you are. This is who you will always believe, always be. And you are taught and told to believe that this is my identity. But this passage says, no, you're not. If you give your life to Christ, that's who you were. See, the great lie of the world is that God can transform every aspect of your life except your sexuality. Will you be tempted from time to time to go back into that life? Probably. But it's not who you are anymore. And a change in identity will result in a change in behavior. Have you given your life to Christ? Then recognize you have a new identity. God has done a radical change. So don't run back. Run forward. Embrace the new life that Christ gives you.
For he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I don't have time to go into my third point. I'll pick it up next week. That God calls us to a life of radical holiness. Radical change for radical love and radical holiness. To live differently than that is incongruent with who God has made you to be. So by the power of the Spirit, let us resist the temptations of the flesh and call upon Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer by faith, and walk in obedience in his world. Let's pray. We are not who we were. You have come and you have redeemed us and you have given us a new identity and a new spirit. We no longer are enslaved to the appetites and the lusts and the hatred and our distrust of you. And you call us to walk in holiness as we live by faith and dependence in you. By God's grace, let us do that in the way that we love one another, in the way that we treat the world, and the way that we honor you. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.